Well, we are in uh, week seven of this Purple Faith series, covering agreement number four. Timley, uh, type, did you put up agreement number three from last week? So this was last week's. Um, because I'm susceptible to misinformation, I will rise above the temptation to judge and condemn those who think differently than me. So I, that was the sermon from last Sunday and last Tuesday evening. Uh, so if you didn't catch that, you want to go check that out and see how misinformation connects to judgment. Uh, you can go, go watch those sermons and get the, get the whole scoop. Tonight's agreement, agreement number four, is as a citizen of God's kingdom, I will put my trust and loyalty in God's kingdom first. As a citizen of God's kingdom... I will put my trust and loyalty in God's kingdom first. Growing up, um, I, was, I was the son of a pastor's kid, but he was associate pastor, part-time minister. And so most of the year, he would paint houses. My dad would paint houses, especially during the summer, summer months and uh, oftentimes through the winter months as well, as people wanted him to paint houses indoors and paint paint rooms. And so all three of us Lindner kids, uh, part of our, I guess, a rite of passage we had was painting with dad. He would pay us, usually about $5 an hour, pay us to paint with him. Harper's mouth just dropped open like, $5 an hour? It's incredible. uh, He would pay us $5 an hour to paint with him during the summer months. And so we'd get up, and, and Dad would usually make our lunches for us, which was another, another you know, delight. Um, he, would, he would make usually just a sandwich, maybe, I don't know, something else, maybe something else with the sandwich, but it was like it was a cheese sandwich, American cheese, one slice of American cheese with, uh, instead, of, instead of mayonnaise or Miracle Whip, it was margarine spread on the on the two pieces of bread. That was that was the dad that was the dad sandwich. But my favorite was when he would make the Big Mac. Was what I called it, the Big Mac, which was peanut butter and jelly, but with an extra slice of bread in the middle. So the three pieces of bread and the two just gives you more of the good stuff of a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Twice as much peanut butter and jelly in one sandwich. So. That was my favorite, but he'd make our, make our lunch, and we'd leave about 8 o'clock in the morning, we'd go out to the house that we, were, that we were painting, and get everything set up, get started going, and I remember one of the things I hated the most about painting was scraping. Anyone had to scrape paint? It's one of the worst things ever. It's a horrible sound. It's worse than nails on a chalkboard. And so I would use my brother's hand-me-down Walkman that had you know, the little, the little the headphones that came over and the little earphones, right? They were like a size of a, a half dollar or something, and put them on and listen to some music to try to drown out the sound of scraping the paint off of the house. And we would scrape off the paint and then paint over it, and Dad would kind of t- give me a section and explain to me everything he wanted me to do, and we'd go and paint most of the morning, and then... Uh, that usually went by pretty quick. We'd stop and eat lunch, and then it seemed like the afternoon just drug on and on. There's like hours and hours, about three times as long as the morning. 
And dad had his stuff that he was listening to and I was listening to um, either, either music like Stephen Curtis Chapman on repeat over and over again or a few comedy albums that I, I had copied from someone else that like Mike Warnke was his name and he got, he got uh, ousted from the Christian community because his stories were made up. He was hilarious, but his stories were made up, so he got kicked out. He wasn't allowed to be a comedian with Christians anymore. <clears throat> but um, So I had a few of those comedy albums. I'd listen to him over and over and over and over again, just uh, memorize, memorize his routines. I even wrote some of them out, but that's a different story, different, uh, different time. Um, so I'd listen to it, and the hours would wane on, just go on and on. felt like they were never, never going to end. We'd finally get to the point at the end of the day where it's time to start cleaning everything up. So I'd start cleaning up my paintbrushes and cleaning up my area. And, you know, and if we put a drop cloth down or something, we'd you know, kind of wrap that up and fold it up. We always put drop cloths down when we were scraping to catch all the paint that we were scraping up. So you kind of fold all that in so you don't make a big mess in their lawn. And, and dad would usually, so I'd like, I'd be cleaning up or asking dad if it was okay to clean up, you know, about three o'clock in the afternoon. No, not yet. We've got to keep going. And the, you finally learn it's about four or 4.30. You can start asking to clean up. Start asking to clean up. I clean up and then dad's still painting away, painting away. And finally he ends, you know, he, he's, he comes down from his section that he's working on. And, and this, was, this was the most irritating part of working with my dad, is we'd paint, and then like the last hour, dad would go back over all my work and fix all the things that I hadn't done that were up to his standards. Now, you know, my dad has, has, a, has a reputation of being a bit of a perfectionist, and he wants things to be wants things to be as perfect as they possibly can be. And it, and it goes with everything from music to woodworking to painting. Uh, all, of his, all of his work throughout his life, there's been, there's been the, the air of perfectionism going with it. And this was one of those things that just drove me nuts. Like I would do some work and then dad would come over and the same thing with woodworking. He'd, I'd do a little bit of work and he'd come back behind me and fix some of the things if I, if I hadn't done them quite like he, he wanted them to be done. And it always, it always bothered me. It always drove me crazy. Like, why can't you just tell me what I need to do? Tell me what I need to fix. Teach me you know, what I need to do instead of coming back over my work and, and fixing my work all the time. It wasn't until later in life that I realized um, that probably what he was doing, aside from his, you know, his proclivities towards perfectionism, uh, a part of what he was doing was this was his business, right? This was, this was his livelihood. This was our family's livelihood. And his work was his reputation. And so his work on the house, his ability to paint the house was his reputation. And so when the neighbors would walk by and see the great job that he was doing and they'd ask, who painted your house? Or when that family would have friends and family over, they'd say, oh, your house looks great. Who painted it? That was his reputation. That was his calling card. That was his, that was his marketing. We didn't do marketing, couldn't afford marketing back in those days. There was no internet at that time. It was just word of mouth. And if you could afford commercials and spots in the newspaper, and Dad didn't do most. Of, he, I think he had an ad in the yellow pages, but other than that, it was, it was just word of mouth. And he was always busy, always able to stay in business. And so 
his, you know, his work, because his name was on the work, not my name, it was his name that was on the work. His work was, his, was the reputation and representation of his business, and his house would stand there that he painted as his representative or as, as a testimony, if you will, of the work that he would do for years and years to come as people looked at it and asked who painted the house. Well, we're citizens of God's kingdom. And if you're not really familiar with the concept of God's kingdom, there, there are three really important aspects of God's kingdom. Matt Chandler summarizes them with three D words like any good pastor would do. He says, God's kingdom is about dwelling, dominion, and dynasty. God's kingdom is, is dwelling. God wants to dwell with his people. He wants us to dwell with him. He wants us to be his people, and he wants to be our God. That's, that's been his desire from the beginning, and you see that theme all the way through Scripture. So it's about God dwelling with his people, Emmanuel, God with us. Then it's about dominion. You know, God created us to, to be rulers over everything. That's part of our, our function as human beings made in the image of God is to be rulers over creation. But then the dynasty is we who are brought into God's kingdom of light are now co-heirs with Jesus Christ, and we serve alongside him, or we literally rule alongside Jesus for, our, for all of eternity. That's part of what happens now when you're brought into God's kingdom. We are, we are co-heirs with Christ, brought into the kingdom to be representatives of the kingdom. First Peter chapter 2, uh, Peter says that we're actually all priests. In the Old Testament, priests were something that was set aside. You had to be born into the right family if you wanted to be a priest. You couldn't be a priest if you weren't of, of the right tribe. But Peter says, as you come to him, the living stone, which is Jesus, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So all of us are like living stones being built into a spiritual house, offering spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, so like with my dad, the, the house was his representation, it was his testimony. We, the body of Jesus Christ, are becoming the spiritual house that is a testament and a representation of God's kingdom and his work. We're representatives of God's kingdom. We're, we're, represent, we're citizens of another world. We're, we're, we're brought out of, out of our, our struggle here in the earth, and our souls are resurrected into an, an eternal existence in God's kingdom. And we are God's handiwork. And then God has given us a special mission that he's put us here to accomplish in the world around us. The author of Hebrews says, For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Christ is faithful as the son of God's house. And we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Christ is faithful as the son of God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. So, so we are God's house if we hold firmly 
to our confidence in the hope in which we glory, which is God's kingdom. It is God's, God's rule and reign throughout all of eternity. It's that God has established what God established. He will bring to fruition and completion. If we hold to that hope, we are part of God's house. And God has us as his house, citizens of God, God's kingdom, our church here at 6-8 Church. We, we, are, we are a testament of God. We are his house, the testament of God to, the, to wherever we are surrounded, whoever we are surrounded by. So as God's house, we are the testimony of, of, God, of the house God is building, the spiritual house that God is building through Jesus Christ in our presence in the church. As a citizen of God's kingdom, I will put my trust and loyalty in God's kingdom first. That's the reality. That is how Scripture paints it. That's what it's supposed to be like. But if we look across the, the world today, if we look across Christianity today, we, we don't really see that all the time as the picture. Sure, there are plenty of churches where God is building the house and, and the testament of God is being, being spoken through that church on a regular basis. But then there are plenty of churches where it doesn't seem like that's the case. And there's a lot of Christianity where it doesn't seem like, like the testament of God himself is being spoken. It seems to be something else. So we have to ask ourselves, where is our hope? As the author of Hebrews said, if we indeed hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory, where is our hope? Is our confidence and hope in the kingdom of God or is our confidence and hope in something else of this world? 1 John is a great letter. If you want to open your Bibles there, you can open up to 1 John chapter 5, the very last verse. There's, we're going to hit a lot of verses here. I'm going to summarize a whole bunch of it as best I can uh, in, in this next uh, few minutes. But if you've read through 1 John chapter, or 1 John, the, the, the whole letter of 1 John, and then you come to the very end of the book, there's this line that just says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And for years and years, I'd read through that and just kind of just be caught off guard by this last statement because he talks about so many other things throughout his letter. He talks about love and what it means to be, to be the, you know, the kingdom of, of God's love and, and his children. We are the children of God, and we'll get into that in just a second. But it seems like he goes through all of these great themes and all of these verses that we quote over and over and over again. And then just out of the blue, almost, this very last verse says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. It's just like, what, what are you talking about, John? What, what's the deal with this keep yourselves from idols thing? Well, let's look at this idea of idolatry. I want to spend some time on that this evening. I've spent a lot of time on it, actually. Most of our time on idolatry. So what is an idol? An idol is a representation of something, either real or imaginary. An idol is a representation of something, either real or imaginary. 
It's called oftentimes a graven image, which sounds like a word that we're used to when we talk about taking, you know, we get our trophies and you get your name on a trophy, you take it to get engraved, right? They, 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 gra- they engrave your name into it, which means they take, they take something and, and cut stuff out of it to, to engrave words into the metal, and the metal then holds that engraving permanently. It was the same thing for an idol. An idol is an engraving. It's, it's, an, it's an image. It's something that's been carved out of something, and it represents anything other than God that we worship. Anything other than God that we, wor- that we worship is an idol. Our mind always goes to the little statues and figurines thinking, oh, well, this must be, this must be, an, this is what an idol can be, and I don't have any idols like this in my house, so I don't have any, I don't worship any idols. But uh, the idol itself is just the representation of the thing that's being worshipped. So like, you know, the Buddhas that a lot of people have in their homes, the little, the little Buddha, the, you know, the the, he's sitting there with his you know, legs crossed and all of that. You know, a lot of people have those. They, they may worship, some people may worship that Buddha, but the Buddha is just a representation of something else, right? It's a representation of Buddha, not, not actually Buddha himself. Now, we could get into a whole lot with idolatry. We're not going to go too far down this road when it comes to the specifics of idolatry. My point is simple. is that we get hung up on saying, well, I don't have any idols in my life because I don't have any, any images of idols in my house or that I bow down to worship and do those things. But the idol itself is just a representation of something that gets worshipped. So the idol then is a representation of an idea that we worship. The idol itself, the actual carved image itself, isn't the important thing. It's what's behind the idol that is important, right? So all of the idols uh, that, that Israel would worship throughout the Old Testament, you know, the, the Baals, and there were a lot of Baals that, that they had different idols for all these different Baals that, that they would worship, and they had, they'd put up all these images. The, the point wasn't the actual idols, although they would definitely get in trouble if they had idols in their possession, but the point was what, they were, what the idols represented that they were worshiping. And just before Israel is sent into exile, we come across this verse, which is in the book of 2 Kings chapter 17, and then comes up again in Jeremiah chapter 2, I think. Um, 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 14 Israel says, but they, Israel, would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God. Did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their ancestors and the statutes he had warned them to keep. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. They were stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust the Lord their God. They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. 
N.T. Wright wrote, he says, you become like what you worship. You become like what you worship. When you gaze in awe, admiration, and wonder at something or someone, you begin to take on something of the character of the object of your worship. And you might have heard me say that a similar phrase. We become like what we worship. I've said that quite a few times. When we worship something, we become like it. And so while it might sound harsh for God to say about the Israelites, they, they followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves, it's not as much a condemnation as it is a realization of what was happening. The Israelites were worshiping these worthless idols, which is what they were, and they were becoming like the worthless idols that they worshiped because we become like what we worship. Back to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2 verse 19, we read this one verse. It says, They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. According to Wright, who I was just quoting, he says, This group had attempted to move their part of the church in a trajectory towards a denial of Jesus' messianic identity on the one hand and a denial of his genuine humanity on the other hand, thus conflicting with two of the central claims of John's gospel, that Jesus is the Word made flesh and that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Their denial that Jesus came in the flesh probably reflected a Hellenistic influence. So John's letter in 1 John is written to the church at Ephesus, which is right in the core of Roman culture. So when you hear that phrase, Hellenistic influence or Hellenistic culture, that's a huge part of Roman influence. Hellenism was a huge part of Roman influence. And so John is writing his letter to the church, which is immersed in this Roman culture, and here in the middle of this group, in the middle of this culture is a church that's being split in half, and, and the church, a bunch of the church has left the church that, that John had established, going out, denying that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, and denying that he came in the flesh. So they were seceding, secessionists, seceding from the church that John had created because they had come under the influence of Roman Hellenistic culture, Greek culture that was all around them. And they had allowed the culture to alter their view of Jesus. So culture was shaping the this, this secessionists' group or the, uh, their idea of what Jesus was or who Jesus was. And they were tearing apart the church. And those who were tearing apart the church had fallen prey to the value system of this dominant culture being immersed in it. And they had not only pulled away from the church that they'd been a part of, but they were spewing hatred and vitriol to those who remained in John's church. So John's letter was written to address a huge division that was taking place in Ephesus. 
And this is why John then spends so much time reminding the church who they are. Right? John's approach wasn't to bolster the church's attack of the people who had left. John wasn't writing to give them ammunition to say, okay, these are the points you need to go after. You need to go after this, you need to go after that, you need to go after that, and you can point out this, you can point out that. And and here's a great, you know, 12-point argument you can make to make sure that they understand that you are right and they are wrong. In fact, John hardly mentions at all the secessionists. He, He hardly talks about them at all. He spends most of his time reminding the church who they are. Because anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or a sister is still in darkness. You are children of God. Don't let anyone lead you astray from that fact. God is light. If you are in Christ, you are in the light. If you're walking in the darkness, you aren't living out the truth. You have an anointing, and you know the truth. These are all things John is telling the church in this letter. Don't you see the great love that the Father has poured out on us, that we would be called his children? I'm writing this to keep you from sinning in the same way those who have left are doing. We know what love is because God is love and has shown us his love through his son laying down his life. And we ought to lay down our lives for one another. Don't believe every spirit that comes along. There are many. Test to see if they're from God. Love one another. Everyone who has been reborn of God loves It's in the name of Jesus that we have eternal life. So keep yourselves from the idols that will take your attention away from that name. This is what John taught in his letter. He he was teaching about how to be the church and how to be disciples of Jesus Christ and what it means to be in Christ and to be in the kingdom and, and how great the love is that has been lavished on us. He wasn't wasn't bolstering their argument. He was saying, this is who you are. Remember who you are. They they went out from us because they weren't apart from us. If they belonged to us, they they would have stayed with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But remember who you are. Remember that you are God's children. But that does kind of echo a lot of what we're dealing with today that there was a church that was being torn apart by by two different ideas, one who was fighting hard to, to cling to the truth and the other who had embraced the spirit of the age. That's because the point of idolatry, the problem with idolatry is never the idol. It's really about where our focus is. The problem with idolatry is, is, not that, is not so much in the idol itself and the carved image that we've made out of stone or wood or whatever it is. The, the problem with idolatry is that we've taken our focus off of God and put it on something else. 
And as, as God said about the, about the Israelites, we've taken our focus off of God, put it on something else, and we're not trusting in God. We're putting our trust elsewhere. Which is why worship is such an important part of the church. Wright also says, when you gaze in awe, admiration, and wonder at something or someone else, you begin to take on something of the character of the object of your worship. That's what I said earlier. Archbishop William Temple says that worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. Submission of all of our nature to God. It's the quickening of the conscience by His holiness. So our conscience is being shaped and, 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 and taught how to think according to His holiness, not our holiness. It's the nourishment of our mind with His truth. This is, this is a big part of what we do when we gather together. It's why we study God's Word as a group and individually. The purifying of imagination with His beauty. The opening of the heart to His love. The surrender of will to His purpose. All of this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable. That's what worship is, according to Archbishop William Temple. I've tried to summarize that into this statement. Whatever consumes my attention, affection, and ambition is what I worship. Whatever consumes my attention, my affection, and my ambition is what I worship. My attention, where my mind is, what I'm thinking about, what I'm dwelling on, my affection, what I love, what I desire, what I'm what I, what I really want in life, and my ambition, what I'm chasing, what I'm going after, what my purpose is. Whatever consumes my attention, my affection, and my ambition is what I worship. So anything other than God or Jesus that consumes my attention, my affection, and my ambition is an idol. It doesn't have to be a physical representation of it. It's just Anything that consumes my attention, my affection, and my ambition is an idol. Back in 2019, we did a series called Like Christ, and at the beginning, the first week of that series, I did a sermon you know, talking about how we're not giving Jesus a fighting chance. And I pulled a couple of studies together that talked about how much time we spend throughout the course of the week consuming media. According to a Nielsen survey, a Nielsen study said that we spend about 11 hours in front of a screen on a daily basis as an average in our country, 11 hours in front of a screen on a daily basis. And there was another study that was put out by Christianity Today, and Ed Stetzer was talking about it. And in that study, they, they mentioned how the above-average Christian, above-average, and this was 19% of all Christians who were, who were in this group, so, there's a, so it's not even the majority, it's one-fifth of all Christians who are these above-average Christians, spent 10 minutes a day reading Scripture and five minutes a day praying, including pastors, by the way. 
So that's 15 minutes a day. The above average Christian, top 20% of Christians, spend 15 minutes a day reading Scripture and praying. And the average American spends 11 hours a day in front of a screen of some kind. Well, I said, well, let's take that 11 hours and let's bring it down to eight, assuming that we're above average in our church, because I really believe that. We're above average when it comes to a lot of these things. So we spend, let's say, eight hours, spend eight hours a day in front of a screen. And, and let's just say everyone in our church is above average, because I really believe that. You know, we're above average. So let's say at least all of us are in that 15-minute-a-day category. If we take those two numbers, eight hours and 15 minutes, that's a ratio of 32 to 1. For every minute we're spending with God, we're spending 32 minutes under the influence of the spirit of this age. Whatever consumes my attention, my affection, and my ambition is what I worship. The Israelites became worthless because they worshiped worthless idols. What are we worshiping? We don't realize the role that worship plays in our spiritual formation, but that's how God designed us to work. He made us for worship. He, he made us to worship him, and a key part of, of our spiritual formation of becoming and maturing in this life was to worship him, and as we worship him and put our focus on him, then we become more like him. And we worship him, and then we become more like him. And we worship him, and we become more like him. We become like what we worship. This is a part of God's design. It's critical for our spiritual formation. But are we becoming more like Christ? Are we becoming more like God by what we worship? Or are we becoming, I hate to say it, are we becoming worthless because we're worshiping worthless idols and ideas? How different would it look? How different would our lives look if we were able to reverse that? Or maybe even if we were just able to balance it out. For every minute we spent in front of a screen, we spent a minute with God. How different would our lives look? How different would our church look? How different would the world around us look as we really invested our lives in worshiping God Whatever consumes my attention, affection, and ambition is what I worship. Whatever I worship is what I'm giving authority to. I'm giving authority to shape my heart, mind, and soul. Whatever I'm worshiping is what I'm giving authority to shape my heart, mind, and soul. And we can see this principle being worked out in Scripture. Jesus said it himself. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. When we're worshiping God, our, our heart is full of God and his, his truth and his love and, and all of the attributes that make up who God is. And that's what's going to come out of us if our heart is full of that. But if we're worshiping other things, then our heart becomes full of all these other things. And that is what comes out. Augustine said, Idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that ought to be worshipped. 
Idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that ought to be worshiped. So we're supposed to be a kingdom of priests here as God's representatives on earth. We're supposed to worship God, and as we worship God, we become more like God, looking more like God, and then representing God to the world around us. But if we're worshiping anything else, we're becoming like anything else, and we're no longer representing God's kingdom. We're representing the kingdoms of this world. Tim Keller said, Dr. Timothy Keller says, an idol is usually a good thing that we make ultimate. An idol is usually a good thing that we make ultimate. It's a good thing that we make the most important thing. He says, we say, unless I have that or I have this, I am nothing. I'm worthless. If I had to take this out of my life, I'd become worthless. I'd become unvaluable. So an idol is a good thing that we make the ultimate thing. When our identity, belonging, beliefs, habits, and purpose get wrapped up in something other than God, we have idols. So I thought it would be fun to, uh, to make up some names for some of our modern-day idols. Because we have all these idols in our culture, and we don't even realize that they're idols. So I thought, well, maybe I could, maybe I could make up some names, and, and we could start putting some names to these idols. So the first one is homoiosis. These are all Greek words because, I mean, all the other gods that we talk about, the mythical gods that we talk about were all Greek names like Zeus and all that stuff. So let's go back to the Greek and, and come up with some names. These are actually from the Bible. But this homoiosis, the first god is homoiosis. This is the god of likeness, identity, resemblance. would also be the god of status and pride. And this god, homoiosis, is, it would be where we find the idols of race and ethnicity, of gender or gender identity, sexual orientation, personality, image, or appearance. Now, you'll notice as we go through this list, you'll, you'll say, well, well, some of those sound like good things. Like, there's nothing wrong with race and ethnicity. There's nothing wrong with, with gender or personality or our appearance, right? And as we go through the list, you'll hear, hear even more things like family and home, religion, recreation, ambition. You'll hear a lot of good things, which, which are Good things that God designed, and they're a part of his ecosystem. But like Keller said, when anything becomes ultimate, then we have an idol. So when any, when any one of these things, these aspects of God's design becomes the ultimate thing, and we elevate it up and lift it up and put it on a pet, pedestal, then we actually have an idol that we're worshiping. And we can see this in the world around us. Our race, our race and ethnicity can easily become an idol 
our gender or our gender identity, especially that, that gender identity has become a big idol in our culture today. Sexual orientation has become a big idol. Our personality or our image, our appearance, we'll get to that more in just a little bit, have also become big idols. So that's the god homoiosis. Homoiosis. H-O-M-O-I-O-S-I-S, if you want to write that down. The next god is, I think it's Alatrios. Alatrios. I practiced these this afternoon, but I've forgotten them by now. Alatrios. Alatrios. This is the god of relationships or the god of belonging. And these two are closely related, right? Our, our, the god of likeness and resemblance is very closely related to the, to the god of belonging and relationship. This is the god where, where, where relationships become more important than God. So this would be the god of you know, the idol of family, kids, friends, home, neighbors and neighborhoods, influence on social media, and fame itself have become idols. Right? Family is a great thing. Having kids is a great thing. And they're a part of God's design, a part of God's plan from the very beginning that we're supposed to be fruitful and multiply. But when we elevate kids all the way to the very top of our lives and everything in our lives points to our kids and what our kids are doing, they become idols. Or our homes and our, our neighborhoods. I don't know if you guys have seen the TV show Love It or List It. It's one of the shows that, that Becky and I have watched sometimes over the years. We haven't watched it in quite a while now. But, you know, they, they take a husband and wife, and usually a husband and wife, and, and they've, got, they've got a house that they already love. And one of, the, one of the, the husband or the wife loves it. So we'll just say the husband loves the house and he doesn't want to move. But the wife doesn't love the house, so she wants to list the house and go find something bigger and better. And almost all of them come back to this, to this problem where, like, we love our neighborhood. We don't want to leave our neighborhood. We've got all, all of our friends and all of our connections and community is in this neighborhood. So, so, yeah, we might be able to find a much nicer house if we could just go five or ten minutes beyond our neighborhood. But, but it's worth a lot more to us to stay here where we are. And so many times... Instead of listing it to go after the, you know, the bigger lot and the bigger square footage, they decide, well, this is more important to us. This is, we need to stay here. This is, this is our neighborhood. And neighborhoods are good and communities are good. And having relationships is a really good thing. But when they become the most important thing in our lives, then that can be dangerous. And then the big one today is fame or influence the number one job, I think at a, at a ridiculous level of like 90% of, of teenagers today, their preferred career, if they could choose, would be to be a YouTuber. They want to be a famous YouTuber. That's, what the, that's the job they want to have, is to be a famous YouTuber. So we can have a lot of idols related to Alatrios. The third idol is pisteu, pisteu, P-I-S-T-E-U-O. Beliefs, ideologies. If you take the first two out of it, this is probably the biggest one in the world today. The biggest idols that, that are being worshipped around the world 
are our ideas and ideologies. In a sense, you can boil almost all idolatry down to ideas and ideologies. These are the gods of power and control, the gods of safety and security, the gods of science or unscience, the gods of politics, religion. Yes, religion can become a big idol. Movements in general, and there's all kinds of movements, rights and freedom, all of that stuff. These, these are beliefs and ideologies, and, and these beliefs and ideologies, many of them very good things that are, that are part of God's design. Science, I believe, is something that, that, that is a part of God's design, where we are able to, through science, see how God has created everything around us. But when science gets elevated to the utmost position, it becomes an idol, and then we're all of a sudden viewing everything through the lens of that one idol instead of through how God wanted things to work. So they're all good things. Safety and security. Of course it's good to be safe and secure. But when everything starts getting run through the lens and the grid of that one thing, it gets out of control. So that's the God, pisteu. Or pisteo or something like that. P-I-S-T-E-U-O. Etho or etho is the next one. We've got two more. Etho, this word is the word for practice, customs, habits. You see this word in Scripture with Jesus where in Luke, I think it was Luke chapter 4, it says that Jesus went to the synagogue as was his custom. Right? Jesus would go from town to town, and usually when he'd go to town, he'd go to the synagogue and says, as was his custom. Well, that word custom, that was habit, pattern, practice, etho, etho. Well, the idols that we place into this category, I would say, are entertainment, technology, recreation, hobbies and interests and pleasure. Well, it may not really sound, sound like th that those make sense, but um, etho or etho, the, the word entertainment comes from a, a French word that was actually about the practice of hospitality. So the person who was responsible for the entertainment or the, the entertainer was not someone who got up on stage and performed. It was somebody who was responsible for keeping the guests taken care of throughout the course of the evening. So they, their responsibility was not as much the entertaining as it is the practice of hospitality and keeping sure that everyone in the room or in the house that evening are, are, are having their needs met. So they were essentially the structure of the entertainment. So that's where I went to the word etho. But it is where we get our idea for entertainment, technology, recreation, hobbies and interests and pleasure. And these, you can see how they can all be really good things. Entertainment can be a really good thing. Storytelling, laughter, all of those things, really good things. Technology, there's a lot of good in technology. Recreation, God wants us to to enjoy his creation and his nature. It has the word right in there, creation. 
hobbies and interests. God created us as creative beings and and pleasures, the pleasures of life. God created all of these pleasures for us to enjoy, and that's what Scripture teaches. God created them for us to enjoy. But when any one of these things becomes the most important thing, becomes the ultimate thing, we have an idol. The last one is buloomi. Buloomi. B-O-U-L-O-M-A-I. Buloomi. This is the idol of ambition, success, achievement, status, influence, money, stuff. This is the idol of, of where we're finding our purpose in success, finding our purpose and meaning in things as opposed to in God himself. So we have a lot of idols in the world today. We just don't think they're idols because we haven't ever stopped and carved an image for them. But now that we've got some names, maybe somebody will start making images and we can start identifying them and calling them out for what they are. I don't really want anyone to carve out images of these words. That was just a, just a joke. All right, so, so God is the builder of the house. When God builds the house, his house is the testament of his kingdom, and, and people are drawn to his house as a part of his building, and, and God's name is right there on it. But then when we are worshiping some other idol, then, then we, instead of looking like God's house, we start looking like the houses of this world and of the dominant culture that we find ourselves in. And then the next step after that is what uh, author Ben Sass calls anti-tribes. He wrote a book called Them. If you want to go check it out, it's a really, really good book. It's one of the few books that I gave a five-star rating to, and I almost never give a five-star rating to a book. So it's a really, really good book, Them by Ben Sass. He talks about anti-tribes. It says, right now, partisan tribalism is statistically higher than at any point since the Civil War. By the way, this book was written in 2017, several years before the pandemic, and we know how things went during the pandemic. But he said in 2017, partisan tribalism is statistically higher right now than at any point since the Civil War. And he says why, his argument for why is because the local human relationships that anchored political talk have shriveled up. He's talking about hometowns, and he's, he describes the hometown gym on a Friday night, and that feeling, I guess it was in an article by Sports Illustrated, that hometown gym on a Friday night feeling. And if you grew up in a small town like I did, you know exactly what he's talking about. Because our, our, our gym in Jackson on a Friday night during basketball season would just be packed out with the community all season long. Football games packed out with the community. Everyone would come out and support the local team. And people, yeah, they might come and they might talk about politics, even disagree about politics. But because they were anchored in this community... Their talks about politics would not become the overarching thing. The community was the overarching thing. So then he says, alienated from each other and uprooted from the places we can call home, we're reduced to shrieking 
screaming our own opinions. He continues and says, anti-tribes of news consumption, even more than political activism, have cropped up to try to fill the void left by the collapse of natural, local, embodied, healthy tribes that people have traditionally known. These anti-tribes aren't succeeding at addressing our emptiness, and they're poisoning our nation's spirit in critical ways. But lacking meaningful attachments, people are finding a perverse bond in at least sharing a common enemy. Finding a perverse bond in sharing a common enemy. For our purposes, an anti-tribe, an anti-tribe is when we're loyal to something else other than God's kingdom. Loyal to something else instead of God's kingdom. Instead of being loyal to God's kingdom, we're loyal to the people who have the same enemies that we do. And you remember how the church at Ephesus was being split because there was a group in the church who had come under the influence of the dominant culture and then started attacking those who remained in the church who were trying to be faithful to God's design. The same thing is happening in front of us today before our very eyes. We're finding groups of people who are loyal to the anti-tribe and dividing churches across the country because they're loyal to those things. Well, I don't think I can finish this tonight. I got a lot closer, but I'm going to stop right there. Tuesday evening, I'm going to wrap this up. And we'll talk about trust, loyalty, and authority. Some really good stuff coming up in those sections and then we're going to talk about the practical application of it all. Living purple. How to know if I have idols in my life. And wrap it up with uh, our faith, hope, and love being anchored in Jesus. Any questions on uh, what I covered tonight or any thoughts on what I covered tonight? Something that either was not clear or a point you'd like to make? That's exactly where we stopped. That's where, we're go that's where we'll be going on Tuesday evening is trust. Which is what it was for the Israelites. They ended up not trusting God and trusting the people they were surrounded by more than they trusted God and trusting themselves more than God. But yeah, it's all about trust. All right. Well, to just kind of recap really quick, it's the house that God is building being the testament. It's his reputation. The house that God builds is the church. The church is God's house. And just like my dad painting that house and seeing the painted house, and that was his reputation in the community, the house that God builds is his reputation 
in the world around and the darkness all around us, and God is building his house to be his testament to the surrounding community. When we worship God and our attention, our focus is on God, then we look more like God, we look more like Jesus on a day-by-day, week-by-week basis, and then we represent him well to the community around us. And when we worship idols, then we, ha- then we start to look more like the ro- world around us and less like God, and we're bad representatives, a bad representation of God himself, and we're representing these other kingdoms. And eventually those misrepresentations start to form loyalties, and they become anti-tribes, and we join up with other people who have the same enemies that we do, and now we're joining together in community and finding a sense of belonging in who we are fighting against instead of finding our sense of belonging and being children of God and connected into the kingdom of God and representing him to the world. That's what we covered tonight. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are building this house, that you are building your church, and you promised, your promise about the church is that you would build the church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. That the church that you build, the church that you establish, would not be threatened by the gates of hell itself. Father, I pray that as we continue on in this series, that you, through, through grace and redemption, lead us to, uh, to that church over and over and over again. Reveal to us in our hearts and our minds and our souls and our lives any idols that we've worshipped, anything that's consuming our attention, affection, and ambition that is not of you. And I pray, Father, that you'd help us to to get rid of those idols and to once again find ourselves worshipping the King of kings and Lord of lords, to surrender our lives to him, to trust him wholly and completely with everything that we are, and to know that he is in control of his reputation by building his church and his likeness on the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.